Jeg har i den her uge talt med den israelske forfatter Yossi Klein Halevi. Jeg har længe tænkt, at vi her i langsomme samtaler skulle tale med en, som var intellektuel, som var interessant og som kunne reflektere over situationen og som havde oplevet angrebet den 7. oktober inde fra Israel. Det har slået mig, at rigtig meget af responsen på Hamas angreb på Israel den 7. oktober har vi i Danmark fået formidlet gennem en højere ekstremistisk regering, anført af Benjamin Netanyahu, og vi har fået adskillige citater fra ekstremistiske ministre i hans regering. Men jeg kunne virkelig godt tænke mig at tale med en, som var tættere på information, som var tættere på vores univers, som var en slags progressiv tænker, som havde oplevet angrebet og som var tilhænger af krigen. Fordi målingerne i Israel viser jo, at et meget stort flertal af israelerne støtter en krig, som vi finder grænseoverskridende og alt for voldsomme med helt uacceptable konsekvenser. Så det er ikke bare Netanyahu's krig, det er et stort flertal af israelernes krig. Og Josi Klein Halevi var i den forbindelse perfekt, for han har skrevet en fantastisk bog, som kom for mere end 10 år siden, der hedder brev til min palæstinensiske nabo. Det er en bog, hvor han forsøgte at forklare sin position i forhold til Israel og Palæstina over for sine palæstinensiske naboer for at nå frem til en fælles forståelse med dem, der kunne blive grundlaget for en tostadsløsning. Han forklarer sin frygt, han forklarer sin længsel, han forklarer sin lede ved, at Israel er en besætter stat, han forklarer sin usikkerhed på, hvad der vil ske, hvis palæstinenserne fik en selvstændig stat. Men han forklarer også, hvorfor han mener, at det er en absolut moralsk nødvendighed for Israel. Bogen Breve til min palæstinensiske nabo er efterfulgt af en masse breve fra palæstinensere, der svarer ham igen og udfordrer hans udlægning af Israels historie, udfordrer hans udlægning af konflikterne. Og det er en særlig fin finesse ved den bog, at den er skrevet fra et israelsk perspektiv, men at han lader palæstinenserne få det sidste ord. Kort efter angrebet 7. oktober skrev Josie Klein Halevi et essay i The Atlantic, hvor han skrev, at han stadigvæk var tilhænger af en tostadsløsning, men han kendte overhovedet ikke vejen derhen. Han skrev også, at Israel havde behov for at slå igen. Israel havde behov for at retablere deres hers troværdighed, og at omverdenen ikke skulle støtte Israel, når man havde ondt af dem som ofre, men at omverdens opbakning først galt, når tanksene kørte ind i Gaza for at straffe øh, Hamas. Jeg skrev til Jussi Klein Halevi, at vi på information har været stærkt kritiske over for krigen. Vi har opfordret vores regering til at kræve krigen afsluttet men at vi også var meget nysgerrige på at høre hans oplevelse af det, og høre hans perspektiv, at vi talte med ham for at lære noget. Det sagde han ja til, og jeg er meget taknemmelig for, at han stillede op til den her samtale. Jussi Klein Halevi er 70 år gammel. Han er født i 1953 i Brooklyn, flyttede som en ung mand til Israel, hvor han har boet lige siden. Her følger min samtale med Jussi Klein Halevi. Well, first, let me iterate. Thank you so much for talking to us. I know this is personal to you. We have strong opinions about the war and the casualties and the background, but I do realize you have a lot more at stake. This is personal. It's existential to you. And I think it's very important for us here in Denmark to hear from someone inside Israel who's not Netanyahu, not the the, the government who's thoughtful and whose books we've read and appreciate it. So in this moment, I'm just so grateful that you take your time and talk to us. Well, thank you. I'm grateful that you invited me and giving a, um, I would say, a mainstream Israeli voice, a platform in Denmark. I'm I'm really grateful for that. I want to ask you first about this year in Israel, because I'm no expert, but it must have been the worst year in the state of Israel's history. First, you have the protest that was very divisive, and people here were speculating, could this lead to some kind of civil war in Israel? And then you have these horrific attacks, a program inside the state that was supposed to defend you against 
these kinds of attacks. What's the situation like in Israel at the moment? Well, you're right that this uh, this was the worst year in Israel's history. I spent uh, every Saturday night uh, leading leading up to October 7 to the massacre, demonstrating against this terrible government. And an indication of how devastating and and really transformative the October 7th massacre was, was that we instantly pivoted from the most divisive point in Israel's history to one of the most unified moments. Virtually the entire country came together around the need to strongly respond, to bring down the regime that, that did that to the Jewish people. And it was an extraordinary thing to see how, for a moment, we were able to just put aside the profound differences and 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 divide that really that really marked this society, and uh, and come together despite the fact that we continue those in my camp continue to loathe this government, but we make a very strong separation between this war, which almost all Israeli Jews believe needs to be fought, and this government, which uh, is, this government is not the war. And and so if you're, ask, you're asked about what the, the situation is like here, we're really at a turning point at this moment in, um, in our ability to continue being unified around the war. And the first factor that's that's undermining the national cohesiveness is the fate of the hostages. And Hamas has made clear that the only way the hostages will be freed, and the only way that really the hostages will, will survive, uh, is if we stop the war. There are those Israelis who believe we should do it, that even though we all agree, or almost all of us agree, that we need to destroy the Hamas regime. The priority must be to, to save these lives. And other Israelis believe that with all of the anguish involved, we need to stay focused on the strategic goal of this war, which is reestablishing the credibility of our military deterrence. In the Middle East, if you don't have a credible military deterrence, you will not survive in the long term. And what this war really is about is making sure that the region understands that October 7th was an aberration, that we let our guard down, we were overwhelmed, but we still are capable of defending ourselves. And, and so that part of Israeli society that believes we need to continue to prioritize dis defeating the Hamas regime destroying the Hamas regime, uh, is ready to do that even at the unbearable price of sacrificing 130 of our fellow citizens. It seems to me as an outsider that there are two founding principles of Israel that are colliding here. One is that no Israeli soldier is ever left behind, something that I think from an outside standpoint, you always admired that every single life remains sacred. And then the other principle, which which is massive uh, military retali retaliation. Do these absolutely, principles absolutely. I, th I think you've 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 framed it beautifully, and it's even deeper than than that because the the Israeli ethos of never leaving anyone behind on the battlefield is actually drawn from Jewish history. You know, for thousands of years through the period of of the Jewish dispersion, the exile. What defined the solidarity of the Jewish people was that if any Jew anywhere were taken captive, other Jewish communities would rally around and even pay exorbitant blackmail to free their fellow Jews. This was a defining principle of Jewish peoplehood, of Jewish solidarity. And what's happening now is that this elemental part of Judaism and the Israeli ethos is now coming up against an equally powerful part of the Israeli ethos, which is 
we do everything we have to do to defend ourselves. And certainly not to leave in power that regime right on our border. That's that's untenable. And I feel divided. I feel torn between these two non-negotiable elements of our ethos. I don't know how to how to navigate it. And 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 I suspect many Israelis feel equally confused. I heard an interview with Yul Nol Harari where he said that at the moment there was a state of shock in Israel still. And he said it was for others to help Israel think in this situation that those outside Israel could help Israelis think. Are you frightened in this moment about this, that, that in this moment of strong, of shock and then of cohesiveness, that you'll do something that will you'll regret in five years' time? Look, if we're talking about civilian casualties, then then let's let's look at Israel's dilemma. This is the most brutal war that Israel has ever fought. It is also one of the most necessary and unavoidable wars that we've ever fought. I believe that this war is existential. It isn't existential immediately. It doesn't mean that if we if we fail to destroy the Hamas regime, that Israel is in danger of being destroyed anytime soon. But I do believe that failure to destroy Hamas after October 7th, failure to restore the credibility of our of our military deterrence, will set in motion a process that will be the beginning of the decline of Israel. It will embolden our enemies. And you know, when when an Israeli looks around at our borders, we don't only see Hamas, we have Hezbollah in the north, we have Syria and Iranian revolutionary bases in Syria. We have the Houthis now in Yemen. We are surrounded on most of our borders by entities, regimes that see our existence as illegitimate. And after October 7th, what October 7th proved to us was that we were living a kind of a fantasy, that we would be able to maintain semi-normal lives with all of these genocidal regimes on our borders. October 7th proved that that's impossible. And so I do believe that this war is ultimately existential, that it is a just war. Then the question is, how do you fight a just war justly? And that, for me, is really is really our dilemma. And I would say to you, and I would say to Yuval Noah Harari, that I welcome input by Israel's friends around the world, but I'm emphasizing friends. I'm emphasizing people who understand the dilemma that Israel is facing. On the one hand, we must fight this war. And on the other hand, the conditions of fighting a war against Hamas in this little territory called Gaza, where the terror regime is so profoundly entwined with the civilian infrastructure, where houses are booby-trapped, uh, mosques, schools, hospitals are all used as Hamas bases, that basically Israel has one of two choices. And we had one of two choices on October 8th. We're either going to allow Hamas to continue to have immunity by hiding behind its civilian population. And that's the game that Hamas has played all along. Or we're going to say that no, after October 7th, the ground rules have changed. We are coming after you. And that's the policy that we're pursuing. Now, I believe that we have no choice to fight this war. I believe we have no choice to fight this war in that way. Is everything we're doing justified? Of course not. Should there be more of an Israeli introspection? Yes. But what happens, the dynamic that has set, been set in motion, is that the more that Israelis feel that we are under siege by the international community, the more we feel unjustifiably accused of the most outrageous uh, crimes. We are not committing genocide. 
we do not deliberately target civilians. It is a fair question about whether we're doing everything we can to prevent civilian deaths. And that's input that I welcome from our friends around the world. I need those questions, but it has to come from a place of, we understand what you're up against. We understand that you did not seek this war. And we understand that you have to fight this war. But given those terms, is it possible that you're not doing everything that you should do to, as you put it very well, to, um, to be sure that you don't regret what you're doing now, five years from now? There's an image in your very beautiful book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, that's Thank been you. widely read here. And I think what's beautiful about it is also the project, going into the webpage and reading the, the Palestinian responses and the way you let them have the last word in the second edition. And it's a it's a beautiful book. And also because we realize that it's painful for you. It's not like saying we should all be friends. Uh, but there's an image that actually taught me a lot. You write near the end of the book that in order for to understand the magnitude and the weakness or vulnerability of Israel at the same time, you have a split screen in your head. In one of them, you are the big state and another you are the small state. And I think for many of us here, we think of Israel as the sole nuclear power in the region with the backing of the strongest military power in the world. And we think of you as the militarily superior, the strong part. But right. you use this image of the split screen. Yeah. Does this apply here as well? Oh, I think October 7th put that split screen into very sharp relief. Uh, the way that this war is seen abroad, for understandable reasons, is that this is the Israeli-Hamas war, or Israel the Goliath, Israel the Goliath against the Palestinian David. But the way that Israelis experience this war is that we are fighting the first phase of the Iranian-Israeli war. This is a regional war. And we know that at any moment, the war can spread to the north. And it may ultimately lead to a direct confrontation between Israel and Iran. So first of all, October 7th proved that we're much more vulnerable, even against our weakest enemy, Hamas, than anyone thought possible. And beyond that, we've always experienced this war as a regional conflict. For many years, uh, really up until uh, the last few years, this was a Sunni-Israeli war. The Arab-Sunni countries were opposed to Israel's existence. And yes, Egypt made peace with us and Jordan made peace with us, but these were never real peace agreements. These were glorified ceasefires. The first real crack in the wall of Sunni hostility uh, were the Abraham Accords, where, the, where five Arab countries actually declared that the war is over and they want normalized relations. The key is, to, is normalization. And so what What's happened in the last few years is that the regional war has shifted from the Sunni Arab world to the Shiite world. And we are now facing a, an alliance of, uh, of countries, regimes, entities that are in the Iranian orbit and that are committed to Israel's destruction. And the way in which the international community is responding to the Israeli-Hamas war is understandable, given what you're watching on TV every night. But that's not the screen that's playing in our heads. We are seeing a much larger war. We are seeing far greater vulnerability for Israel. And ultimately, behind all of these confrontations, there looms the threat of a, of a nuclear Iran. And if I could just make one, one last point here, which is that Iran has won two strategic victories against Israel. I would even say historic victories. The first is that it has, what I mentioned earlier, is that it succeeded in virtually surrounding Israel with its proxies, 
And the second historic victory is that October 7th has succeeded in diverting the world's attention away from the Iranian bomb. You mentioned that Israel is the sole nuclear power. Well, Iran is right on the threshold. And for all we know, Iran might have already crossed the nuclear threshold. And yet no one in the international community is speaking about a nuclear Iran anymore. Everyone is speaking about Hamas and Israel. And that's a tremendous achievement on the part of the Iranian alliance. My wife is a refugee from Iran, so I know all about the the oh, cunning wow. strategies wow. of uh, of of that re regime. And acknowledging the split screen, we of course recognize the security imperative in Israel. And I never thought, as someone, and I repeat, don't know a lot about. It, I never thought there were genocidal intentions within the Israeli regime. I always thought there was a conflict between the security imperative and the moral imperative. And the security imperative to protect Israeli lives would trump the moral imperative to protect Palestinian lives. That this this was this was how we should understand the, the conflict. Then where is your limit to to what? How much can you um, sacrifice on the moral imperative side in this war? What, what's right. the what's the limit to the suffering and the dis humanitarian disaster that you can live with? Okay, it's. That's the question. That's that's the right question to to ask an Israeli and the necessary question. But uh, before I answer, I just want to to say that that question is asked in two different ways by people around the world. The first is the way you asked, which is coming from a place of of sympathy, of understanding Israel's predicament and saying, okay. I, I understand what you're saying, and yet we have a moral, a humanitarian disaster on our hands. What do you say about that? The second way in which that question is asked is you, Israel, have no right to be defending yourselves because you're an occupier, because your very existence as a colonialist uh, European 19th century state is illegitimate. And, and what tends to happen in the Israeli mind is that we don't hear the distinction, and we need to hear it. We need to hear that that same question, which is thrown at us as an accusation, not just against this war, but against our very existence, is actually being asked by reasonable people who are our friends in a very different way. And I feel that I am morally accountable to you. I'm morally accountable to people who wish Israel well and are horrified by what's happening. And I have to take your question seriously in a way that I will not engage with those who are challenging my, my right to exist. Thank my you for that. Well, I, and thank you for the way you, you, you approach this unbearable question. Look, the truth is that since October 7th, a part of me has been frozen. Part of me has been in shock. And what makes October 7th so stunning, you know, you, you referred to it as a pogrom earlier, and that's how I would say most Israelis speak about it as a pogrom. I actually think that pogrom is the wrong historical analogy. Because a pogrom is an outburst of uncontrolled frenzy, of almost animalistic passion. October 7th was not that. It was premeditated. The terrorists carried a manual which instructed them to cut off the arms and legs of the civilians they captured. Rape was not a an unfortunate consequence of this military assault. Rape was the assault. Rape was the war. The, the atrocities were the war. And the purpose of the atrocities was to terrorize Israelis into believing that we have no future in this country, that we are up against an enemy 
that is so determined, that is capable of absolutely any cruelty, that the only chance we have of surviving is to take our children and escape from here. That was the purpose of October 7th. So when I say that a part of me is frozen, and I think this is true for most Israelis, is that we experienced a level of intentional cruelty, not a pogrom, that we don't quite know how to process. A level of such overwhelming hatred that the only way to respond to October 7th was really only one of two ways. The first is to respond the way Hamas intended for us to respond, which is to panic and flee. The second was to say, we are here no matter what. We're not running. And we will not allow October 7th to have the final word. And so I don't know how else to fight this war, a war that I believe I have to fight. Now look, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean when I said earlier that Hamas and civilian Gaza are totally entwined. First of all, Hamas fighters don't wear uniforms. They slip in and out of the civilian population. I have a friend of mine who returned from fighting in Gaza, and he told me that his unit found a tunnel, a booby-trapped opening to a tunnel within a water purification installation. And he said on the wall there was a plaque. This installation is a gift from the government of Germany to the people of Gaza. In other words, what Hamas has done is co-opt the entire civilian infrastructure for its purposes. And so I come back to the point of the question, the dilemma that we faced on October 8th. Do we allow Hamas immunity this time or not? Let me ask you a question, Ruth. Sure. If you if you believe that Israel has the right to self-defense, and I, I think that you do, yes. if you believe that Israel had to respond after October 7th, what would have been a proportionate response? I believe that this response now, this isn't even a proportionate response to October 7th. I wouldn't want Israel to do a proportionate response, because a proportionate response would be to deliberately inflict atrocities. So what is a proportionate response to what we experienced on October 7th, and to the threat that we experience post-October 7th? I think that is the good question to ask someone like me protesting <laughs> the enormous atrocities uh, following the war, and, and my answer will be a poor answer because I'm no military strategist, but I would strongly, I think, focus on taking the leaders of, of, uh, of, of Hamas out, and I would be more focused on targeted operations against them, and I would, but you're asking me a question. Okay, where, I'm, where with, I'm, you. A, no, I'm but, with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I would think that most of those who support Hamas, because I realize that is uh, that, that of course is 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 also the dilemma for you. Speaking of a two-state solution, now that that most of them could be won over, that there was actually that that there is a battle of hearts and minds with them. So taking their leaders out and showing to the world how they neglected to use the tunnels for refugee for their own citizens. How, said, how they said they would not take responsibility for the security of Palestinians, how they're sitting in Qatar while, while the civilians are dying. I think I would try, try and target that, but that is a poor man's response from someone who never been to war. It's a very good response. The problem is we can't get to them. We can get to those in Qatar, although we actually are constrained from intervening in Qatar because we're, Qatar is trying to help us get our hostages out. But we can't get to the Hamas leadership in Gaza because they're in the tunnels. There are 450 miles of tunnels under this tiny 
strip of land. This is where they've invested all of their resources, all of the foreign aid they've received over the years. It's gone into this underground world of the tunnels. If we could get to their leadership, I would agree with you, but I don't see how we can. And so we, we have moved into the next phase of this war, which is more precision. It's more, more targeting uh, specific uh, well, goals, but there really is a, a limit to how targeted you can, you can focus in Gaza. Part of me feels that we should try to reach a deal now on the hostages, end the war in Gaza, and prepare for the next stage of this war, which will be war with Hezbollah. And I believe that that's inevitable for several reasons. One is Hezbollah is a far more formidable threat to Israel than Gaza. And secondly, there are tens of thousands of Israelis who have fled the northern border. The northern border is empty. It, there are only soldiers there now. We've lost our, for all practical purposes, our towns and villages in the north are ghost towns. And Israelis who lived in the north are saying they will not go back as long as Hezbollah is there. They will not be waiting in their homes for another October 7th. And we all know if Hezbollah remains on the border, they have tunnels going into Israel. And we, we don't know where they are, but we know they have these tunnels. Hezbollah has at least as an extensive tunnel network as Hamas. It's far more powerful. It's far more wealthy. It's a direct client of Iran. Hamas is, a, is an ally. It's not a proxy of Iran. And so Hezbollah has benefited from Iranian largesse. And they're also under direct command of Iranian Revolutionary Guards. We cannot live with Hezbollah on our northern border. And so sooner or later, and I suspect sooner, there's going to be a terrible showdown with Hezbollah. Hezbollah has anywhere between 150,000 and 180,000 missiles and rockets aimed at the Israeli home front. The Iron Dome, the anti-missile system that Israel has, is tremendously effective, but it will be almost completely overwhelmed by what Hezbollah is able to fire at us. And so we're looking at a war that will devastate the Israeli home front. And yet many Israelis, maybe, maybe most, believe that we have no choice but to, to fight this war. And so the next stage of the Israeli-Iranian war is going to be in the north. You know, again, as someone sitting on the outside and whose life is not in danger, who don't have relatives whose lives are in danger, who's been, who's, who's been moved, many would say here, Will, that the incessant war and the war as a method, there's limits to how much security that, 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 that it could produce. And I think that's what Joe Biden was trying to say early on in the beginning when he said, well, America made mistakes after 9-11, trying to, to, to wage an asymmetrical war where, where you need security and they just need to stay in the game. What's the limit to war as a method for you? It's a very important argument. And again, we need to, to hear that from our friends. I would caution, though, against too easy a comparison between Israel post-October 7th and the U.S. post-9-11. And the reason for that, first of all, is that bin Laden wasn't sitting in New Jersey. And uh, the terrorists were not a direct threat after 9-11 to the American mainland. After October 7th, our version of bin Laden we're still on the border, and not just one border, but most of our borders. So the question of what's the alternative to war 
Look, we do have an alternative. We have the Abraham Accords. And sooner or later, we are going to have to come to terms with the Palestinian people who are the, the other claimant to this land that we share. There are two indigenous peoples in this land, and neither is going away. And so war has only a limited ability to keep us safe. But when you're dealing with regimes that are capable of that level of atrocity, and then of celebrating it, and of holding that up as a model for future attacks, and that promise us, as Hamas leaders did after October 7th, that there will be many, many more October 7ths. War is intended to protect you from aggression. You're either a pacifist, and I respect pacifism, or you say, no, war is the means to protect ourselves from precisely these kinds of threats. And is it the answer? Of course not. But if you don't protect yourself against these enemies, you will never get to the stage of, of a peace process. There's a very beautiful picture, and I think it's in uh, memoirs of a Jewish e extremist. I think it is, uh, where you say, I have two nightmares about Israel's future. The first is that there won't be a Palestinian state. The second is that there will be a Palestinian state. It's an image that you, that you use in the beginning. And I think it's been throughout your work that that this there must be a Palestinian yes. state, but it's also very, 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 very dangerous. And I think for us here, it's important to understand that there will is a lack of security when you trust someone to to to, to have a state next to you. And that's what we're asking when, when we demand a, a, a two-state solution. Are you still after October 7th? in favor of the two-state solution? Well, it's, it's, it's a really good question because October 7th, in a way, validated both of those fears that you, that you cited. And, and yes, I, I, did, I did write that, and that has been my position for, for many years, is that there, on the one hand, there is nothing more frightening about a Palestinian state overlooking our most sensitive border Pal the palestinian a palestinian state would would be created in the west bank highlands the high ground overlooking the israeli coastal plain which is greater tel aviv which is where 80% of the israeli population lives and if we withdraw from the west bank israel will be 8 miles wide at its narrowest point so that's terrifying and then if you factor in what's happened in gaza the prospect of a Hamas takeover of a West Bank state, which I think is more likely than not, given the fact that Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, is so thoroughly corrupt and despised by most Palestinians, I think it, there's a better than even chance that Hamas would emerge in control of a Palestinian state. And so what do we do if bordering Tel Aviv and Jerusalem will be a Hamas-run state? That's one Israeli nightmare. The other Israeli nightmare is to continue ruling over another people indefinitely, to be occupiers over our neighbors. And for me, that is a that undermines thousands of years of Jewish history, the credibility of who we are as a moral people. It, it undermines our history, our identity. And so these are two unbearably painful dilemmas. It's a very Israeli choice because there are no good options. Now, what October 7th did was in some ways sharpen these two arguments. On the one hand, October 7th proved the madness of establishing a Palestinian state in the West Bank. After we experienced October 7th, how do we then make ourselves vulnerable on that border? And that's certainly where almost all Israelis are right now. But there's another takeaway from October 7th, which is that the massacre proved, the hatred and, and the, the cruelty proved that these two peoples cannot live together in one state. 
we need to separate into two political entities. We need a Palestinian state. But that's a different argument than saying that if we create a Palestinian state, we'll have peace. I don't know of anyone in Israel today, including people on the left, who really believe that if we were to withdraw tomorrow from the West Bank, we would have peace. I think if you were to ask Israelis what would happen the morning after an Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank, the answer is we would be fighting the war even more intensely. And so the first thing that I think Europeans in particular need to free themselves from is this well-intentioned illusion of land for peace. There's not going to be land for peace. We're not going to give up land and get peace in return. But there's still a powerful argument to be made for a withdrawal from the West Bank. And that is, we can't live together in one state. We can't continue to occupy another people and still be a democracy and still be a worthy Jewish state. These are very powerful arguments that, if anything, October 7th has only intensified. And so the real argument that I would ask our friends in Europe to make to us, the way in which, if you want Israelis after October 7th to hear you, you need to sound realistic. And honestly, when Europeans speak to us, they sound like fantasists. They sound like they're talking about a different Middle East. It's not the Middle East that I live in. Talk to us in a way that acknowledges the profound dilemma that Israelis are facing. It will be terrifying to create a Palestinian state in the West Bank. Acknowledge that. Acknowledge that the chances of us getting peace in exchange for withdrawal are not very good. And then say, okay. Let's think this through together. How can we as your friends help you? Because being permanent occupiers of the Palestinian people is destroying you from within. And so, okay, you're facing an unbearable dilemma. But as your friends, we also want you to remember that there's another side of this and that a Palestinian state is not only a threat, only a security threat, it will be a security threat but it will also extricate you from other threats. And one, one last point here, which takes me back to the Abraham Accords and the change that's happened in much of the Sunni world. Israel now has Arab allies. We need to figure out how do we try to solve the Palestinian tragedy in a regional context. A regional problem requires a regional solution. This is not the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This is a regional war against Israel. How do we shift from regional war to regional peace? And Europe can help us there. But again, it means not obsessively focusing on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but seeing this in a much wider context as a regional conflict, a regional war against Israel. And if, I, if there's one good thing that came out of this, I think it's the recognition on our part that there's a conflict between peace and justice, that actually doing justice to the Palestinians will also lessen your security. So I think that there's an understanding here of that because it's so visible. So I, I, I know you don't always feel that when you hear people criticizing Israel, But I think, you know, you don't have to, you have to think of this for 30, 45, 60 seconds. Then you immediately say, well, if you don't want another occupier, then who would be running and what would be the role yes. of Hamas? And we also I, need, we need Europeans to ask the Palestinians some hard questions, the Palestinian leadership, and to stop giving the Palestinian leadership a pass. The Palestinian leadership has rejected every peace agreement that was on the table. And Europe never challenged. It didn't challenge Yasser Arafat. It didn't challenge Mahmoud Abbas. And I'm not talking about average Palestinians. Average Palestinians are, are, are so beaten down, are so humiliated, and they're in no condition to make concessions. I'm speaking about the leadership. And, and European leaders never pushed 
the Palestinian leaders. And I blame, I blame Europe in part, especially after the failure of the Oslo peace process, a, a peace process that bore the name of a European capital. And Europe, of all places, should have demanded of Yasser Arafat, look, Israel just accepted a two-state solution. Israel has offered a Palestinian state in 95% of the land. Israel has offered to redivide Jerusalem. That's not good enough for you? Okay, what's your counteroffer? What do you want Israel to do? Put an offer on the table. We never heard that from European leaders. And so part of the blame of bringing us to this point rests with the international community generally, and Europe in particular. I have just one last question, and I know this is a very difficult question, but it's invited from your own. Oh, they're, they're all difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's because there is something that struck me the first time I read the letters to my Palestinian friends. It's where you say that you came to understand something of the power of Palestinian national identity while serving as a soldier in the time of the first intifada. You say, patrolling in Gaza and the West Bank, I confronted young peoples throwing rock against soldiers with guns, fighting for their people, and felt respect for them as worthy adversaries. In their place, I would have done the same. So I'm asking you to think, what would you have done today if you were a civilian Palestinian? You know, it's really a problem when a writer is quoted against himself. <laughs> I, uh, I really have to own that. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, Rune, that I feel frozen since October 7th. And I've been struggling to unfreeze on exactly this question, to try to experience something of this vicariously, to at least not experience, that's not possible, but at least to try to imagine what is it like for Palestinians who are trapped in this tiny territory, the terrifying bombardments, the cold, the hunger. I look at my granddaughter, I recently became a grandfather, and I look at my, my, my little granddaughter and think, what would it be like to be born in Gaza this year? And so I'm trying to push against this numbness and frankly, the rage that I feel. And when you're, when you're consumed by rage, it's very hard to be empathic. But I feel that I need this for my soul. I need the kind of conversation that you and I are having because I'm afraid of who I can become, who we can become, who maybe we're becoming. I'm very afraid of that. In terms of trying to take it to the next step of empathy and trying to imagine what I would do and think as a Palestinian, that's one step too far for me. When you're in the middle of this kind of a, of a war, it's really hard to try to imagine what I, I, can, I can tell you what I hope I would do as a Palestinian. You know, there are, there are Palestinian voices that I follow in this time who are deeply critical of Israel, but also deeply critical of Hamas. And I have tremendous respect for them. We disagree. I, I believe that, as I've tried to make clear in our conversation, that we have no choice and we have to fight this war. I totally understand. Palestinians who who have the opposite position, but at the same time see Hamas as a disaster, that Hamas and rejectionism has brought one tragedy after another on the Palestinian people. And I can tell you what I hope is going to happen, that Palestinians will emerge from this devastation with a very simple question. How is it that every time we think we delivered a major blow to Israel, it inevitably reverberates against us. It happened when, when Arafat rejected the, the peace offers in the year 2000 and then launched the Second Intifada, four years of suicide bombings, which until October 7th was the worst time in Israel's history. And yet that ended when Israel built the security barrier, the wall, and 
the repression of Palestinians intensified. And so at what point do you start to challenge your own leaders and say, why aren't we coming up with a peace plan that centrist Israelis who want a two-state solution can live with? And I'm waiting for those partners. I have a few. And my, my book was really an attempt to try to find partners on the other side for a two-state solution that both sides can live with. And I may not be there right now emotionally, but I believe that I will be there emotionally when this terrible war ends. And we'll all wake up into the same Middle East. Nobody's going anywhere. Not us and not the Palestinians. We're stuck with each other. And I come back full circle to what you said in this conversation, which is war is not the solution. Unfortunately, it is a solution to an immediate problem now, but it is not the solution. And there, ultimately, there is no alternative to peace. Thank you for your sincerity. Thank you for sharing your insights, your thoughts and reflections in this very, very critical situation of your country, your own life. Thank you. I'm so grateful for having talked to you and for what you're willing to share with us. Thank you, Josie. Thank you. And Rune, that, that gratitude is mutual. Thank you. I'm, I'm very appreciative of this conversation. Det var min samtale med Jussi Klein Halevi. Den bog, vi primært refererer til, er breve til min palæstinensiske nabo. Men der er også en anden bog, som jeg refererer til ganske kort. Det er hans første bog, som hedder Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist, som handler om, hvordan han blev opdraget ind i den jødiske tro, og hvordan er en militant rabiner, som hedder Mir Kahan, og hvordan han bagefter måtte bryde med ham. Det er to bøger, som jeg varmt kan anbefale. Den langsomme samtale med Josi Klein Halevi var produceret og redigeret af vores gode ven og hjælper, Albert Kuhlmann. I næste uge skal vi tale med Hannah Ritchie. Hun er skotsk forsker ved Oxford University. Som ung var hun klimaaktivist, meget, meget intens klimaaktivist, og hun var så overbevist om, at klimakrisen ville føre til menneskehedens undergang, at hun leder nærmest konstant klimadepression. Da hun begyndte at arbejde på Oxford University på projektet der Our Data og gennemgik alverdens udledningstal og statistikker, blev hun mere opmuntret. Og hun har nu udgivet en bog, som handler om, hvorfor der ikke er grund til at tro, at klimakrisen er verdens afslutning, men at det er slemt nok alligevel. Hende taler vi med i næste uge. Tak fordi I lyttede med. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. 